Kelly, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. This time, we are picking up part two of our discussion of the fifth act of Kentucky Route Zero. This is the end of the series. If you didn't catch the first couple of episodes in the series, I'd recommend pausing this one, going back to the start, and starting from there. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Weaver's the true geist of history in this case. Um, there's also, like, I guess, like, maybe it, it, it might not even have, like, a positive thing going on here, but at the very least, there's a negative statement that going, like, there's no way in hell the skeletons are going to organize their way into liberation inside the factory. That's the, like, negative statement. Um, but the positive statement is more ambiguous and, like, may, there maybe isn't even a positive, because, like, it's a downer ending, like, still. There's a glimmer of hope that one can live free from the nightmare, but it's it's not much. Like there's you're you're not gonna there's not much there's not many riches here at the end of the rainbow. There is at best an abandoned space that is disconnected from capital. Well, like I think I maybe I said this in the green room or something, but it's like it's like decelerationism instead of accelerationism, right? Like it's not like oh you know the forces of production become so developed at the general intellect, like it's like like there's no um, uh, with all due respect to the to the name of the show of your show, right? Like there's no there's no like just like creating a kind of like masturbatory fantasy off these like four pages in the Grundrisse, which you know I mean my biases always show through when I have these conversations, but like I, I. that, that shit does drive me absolutely fucking nuts. Um, like I, 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 you know, uh, but but uh, this this is feels like a little bit um, more a little bit more gra- like kind of grounded. Uh, it's a little down, but it's like yeah, it's like it's not like um, eventually everyone becomes like like eventually everyone becomes like autonomous uh, influencers or something or like coders or like it's 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 a little bit. Um, it's like no, it's like there's it's it's they're not they're not growing out of the um post scarcity uh uh digital economy in some way right yeah and I, I think as well like um there's a sort of is ought problem here as well in the kind of reading of this that like we we on this show would very much like there to be an active workers movement that is organizing the workers in skeleton hell but there isn't and this this game for better or worse is a is a decent index of where class struggle is right now, you know, and where the, where the possible optimisms are. Um, well, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, there is a, there is a, uh, there certainly is a movement inside of skeleton hell to organize workers. It's just not doing very well. Even, 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 uh, an endorsement from the president of the United States couldn't save it. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm kind of arguing with a sca- with a scarecrow in my head, basically, where I could imagine sort of old school union organizer people being like, "Bah, this this game is fucking like it, they, they they don't they don't mention Trotsky even once, you know." Um, and I think there's there's a kind of like there is something positive to the kind of um, or that there's something to like about the way the cla- the class stuff is presented here. That like, yes, it's it's not what we want, but it is uh, it's novel and like. 
does kind of like uh, swear down the like precarity and like lumpenization of, of labor in this moment. You know, there's there's something to it there that I would I would push back against the flat cap people. Again, it's a scarecrow in my head. It's not really I'm not arguing with the people on this call, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, uh, Bob, you, you could probably speak to this because you've been there as well. But what this really sort of paints for me as like an image of utopia is basically like the Kootenays in the early 2000s, the, the, the back to the land hippies who like who didn't go back to the city and become yuppies, but just like lived out there in poverty uh, and kind of have like garlic at music festivals and stuff like that's that's kind of the vibe I get from this community. Yeah, I could see. That. I mean, there's definitely um, numerous allusions, I think, to that. Uh, um, that kind because of, it, it it is a bit of a, a, a dropout um, or tour, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. right? Like a, a kind of a dropout uh, uh, model, right? Or or picture, right? Which which is nice because then you got this, like you said, it's like it's it's um it's not um it's not uh, unrealistically hopeful. Do you know what I mean? Like it gives you a bit of a sense of uh, right, like like even like I said, like I, I, that's why I kind of went with the cheesy portmanteau uh, magical capitalist realism, right? Like, um, yeah. you know, because like, you do have that sense of um, um, yeah, it's not like the end of uh, sorry to bother you or something, right? Mm-hmm. No, not at all. And I, I guess I was just saying that because it's like this place that they're building, I feel like I've lived there, like I. I've been there and I've lived there and I know what it's like because um, that's these are the kind of spaces that I grew up in, you know, in, in, in the interior of British Columbia. Yeah, I guess maybe one more sort of thing that I, I kind of appreciate about this that um, it's because like, there's definitely that kind of like hippie edge to this that is, you know, it's maybe not it's not exactly the kind of path to liberation we definitely want. But there's something here in uh putting it front and center that in order for these people to be free, the bosses have to actually be gone. Yes. And that's, that's not the like, uh, social democratic, like union reform sort of path to socialism where the bosses hang around and you just like transform their state slowly. The bosses are fucking gone in this ending. And that I appreciate as a statement. And even if these people are not on a firm footing to build a viable society after that, at least it's saying that, like, no, our lives were fucking incompatible with that shit. And they had to go. And that's the... It's it's one, once that dark fucking rain cloud is gone, there is a glimmering, tiny possibility of, of, of liberation. But their presence is the thing that absolutely fucking kills any of that potentia- potentiality. So they're, they're not doing a Hilferding here, you know. They're they're not doing a Kautsky. Well, it's extreme. I'm sorry. Well, I'd say it's extremely telling that there are no roads in or out of the community, right? Like it is, it is cut off from which is kind of. I almost had this thing. You almost made me thinking about. Um, and and uh, my apologies to, to either of you, you, you or your listeners if I'm misjudging uh, the, my room here. But uh, it's like my friends who are like really into crypto 
right? Oh, no. Like, um, I'm just, I don't know what to say, man. Uh, but like, uh, and, you know, um, but uh, I think you'll find that our our listeners are not fans of crypto. No, they fucking hate that shit. My guess is my guess is no, but I never know. Like, I, I, I was I was talking to a, <laughs> a seminar on Zoom. I can tell you after the the show, like, we're like, I definitely accidentally misjudged the room and immediately realized it. Uh-oh. It wasn't about crypto. It was about something. <laughs> it was about something else um, related to the, the Canadian environmental movement. Uh, it was a good line, but it was about the right room. But, um, uh, but uh, this is kind of like, oh, you know, when I, you know, I hear about like, it's like, oh yeah, you creating it. Okay. I, I'm actually quite, I'm quite skeptical of the notion of using technology to create a stateless currency that can self-regulate, but I like the concept and okay. The currency is not mined by capital. It's not mined um, by the government. There's no central bank, yada, yada, yada. But it's just like, yeah, but then you're just going to plug it into like a globalized financial market. Like you get, don't you understand, dude? Like I, I try to explain them, but they're not, they're kind of left-leaning, but they're not Marxist, but, and beyond not Marxist, they don't have any kind of history or political economy of like monetary theory or anything, right? Like nothing, right? So it's just like, it's just like, don't you get it? Like, it's just going to become a speculative act. Like it's, that makes, it can't, it can't do like the uber capitalist stuff. My friends who are into that, I almost respect more than the ones who are kind of left-leaning and are just like, you get why this doesn't work. Right. Like it, it can't it can't work. Like even if the technology can work um, uh, separate from right. It, like even if the technology could work in a community with no roads, let's say um, you've got, you know, you've got a highway leading directly to J.P. Morgan or who, which, or whichever. <laughs> right. So it's completely irrelevant um, in, in, in this particular iteration. And, and to me, like this felt a little bit like that um, with uh I think there's another. Yeah, I mean, I think there's another way to read this, which is that it's it's working in the literary tradition of utopia, which is frequently like, oh, it's 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 an island uh, apart from the rest of the world uh, where, you know, this ideal society could exist. Um, And that's that's it's basically an island in the middle of a forest, you know. Is the only the only place where Ayn Rand's beautiful vision flowered under the sea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it, I mean, like you know, it's it's not realistic, but like I guess the thing is, um, the, the the danger in these kinds of concepts is like trying to make it a reality. You know, like uh, like oh yeah, like going and moving to the Kootenays and saying that's going to be utopia, even though there's highways running into it. But just like the general isolation of that mountainous area is enough to create utopia. That kind of thinking is dangerous. But just kind of like, you know, using this as a sort of thought experiment about like, what if we just had like one fucking second or one inch of our lives that wasn't run by capital, right? Like that kind of thought experiment, I could at least respect even if i recognize it's it's not realistic and it's and it's a beautiful like it's a beautiful experiment and it's and, and it makes for a really beautiful art in this case right like it is it's uh uh you almost feel like like it, it feels more quiet like like comfortably quiet in this act like in this town right, than any place i can imagine living in 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 the old in the old meat world you know at the moment 
totally. And I, I do sometimes definitely wonder, it's like, yeah, what, what if what if the boot was taken off our neck even for a fucking moment? That'd be lovely. Um, we we kind of get a little bit of that as we move past this, like, checkpoint thing where they do a little flash to black and, like, the, the text comes up, uh, we saved what we could. And when we flash back in, time has moved on a small bit. Um, there's more ghosts walking around. The the gang is moving some of the, st- uh, the furniture into the house. Um, I think some of the ghosts' encounters give us more of this backstory on how the company closed the pl- the power company closed the plant and withdrew from the town, taking most of the residents with them and leaving these stragglers behind. Um, we also get the the bit from Clyde about like yeah that separation from the web of the world, right? Because there's no roads running here, um, and there's there's an option then for him to say that. Um, that this other person, Cass, uh, who's not not around anymore, insisted on having no roads to protect the neighbors explicitly, and uh, that they wanted to maintain this isolation from. I mean, yeah, you can read it pretty, pretty clearly as being isolation from the economy and uh, and from capital. Yeah, because there was that uh, discussion in the in the um, in Pueblo Donata uh, interstitial about um, the the feral nature of the neighbors. Right. That they they were once, you know, their species was once wild. They were domesticated and then they became something else in a a wild that had like moved through the process of uh, domestication. Um, And so it's kind of like, yeah, if you put the roads in, then the neighbors are going to become domesticated again. They won't be feral. Mm-hmm. And feral, feralness is standing in here for, like, the possibility of communism. The, the possibility of life after domestication, right? Like, that the, a wildness could return after we've been uh, subsumed, right? Like, after total subsumption, could we could actually go f- to feralness. And, like, yeah, as we were saying, like, as, as unrealistic as this might sound to us who are, like, obsessed with political economy and, like, left strategizing and stuff like that. I mean, this, this isn't a model for organizing, but it... As a thought experiment, it puts down some of the like core things that are required for a post-capitalist life. That like the bosses have to actually be gone. Um, the germ seed for this would probably need to gain distance from like capitalism to start to germinate. Like this, this town is a germ seed of a post-capitalist world, and it can only remain that way while it's isolated. Because if it comes back into contact with finance, it'll just be fucking taken over again. Like the uh, the horses will be redomesticated, turned turned into glue or whatever, <laughs> turned into fucking glue exactly. But that's the kernel of the concept to focus on. I think uh, not really to take like lessons for organizing. You're not going to write a pamphlet about this, but it's it's worth thinking through this kind of thing of like, yeah, I mean, you really do actually need separation and space and to to get elbow room to to start to live differently. Um, away from the uh, the um, the web of this thing, um, yeah. We can also go up to the, the the geodesic dome houses, and we get the ghost memory of uh, Sandra trying to hide a diary from Fraser, um, and she's kind of ruminating on how how did this person consolidate so much invisible power? Um, this is definitely the bit where it's like mixed up as to like is it the early twentieth uh, century or is it the mid twentieth century? But shrug. Yeah, and it's it's just you know. Basically, like, left-wing cult shit is what it's gesturing at. As, like, you know... (laughs) Which is an eternal feature of left-wing stuff. (laughs) Oh, yeah, like, this... Yeah, it's like this this tradition that we are are taking up and becoming a part of by living here in this space is extremely 
uh, spotty in its record and is full of tragedies and failures and atrocities. And I, something about geodesic domes, man, they just like they never fully go out of style. They're like they're just the specter that haunts the uh, non <laughs> like I don't know non capitalist imagination or something, right? Like. It's- the specter is haunting Europe and it's the icosahedron. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because I have absolutely been involved with the construction of a, of a protest dome in like the early thousands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was on campus back then. Was it a dome, though? Wasn't it like more of a tent? Were you on UBC um, like when we were like uh, trying to destroy that, uh, when we built those domes? We, tried, we were trying to save the Yeah, goal? yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? Dude, I took out the plastic for like me and a, and a, and a guy who actually knew what he was doing with a drill, uh, Buddy Head. Uh, like, like I didn't do a lot in that movement. I, I edited the ad, agit prop, like their newspaper, um, and or one of the editors. And then I, uh, I showed up on Sunday uh, with a power drill with another guy and disassembled all of the um, uh, disassembled all of the uh, tra- TransLink bus. Um, uh, uh, bus shelters while, while the security wasn't looking and we just took all of the plastic uh, plexiglass to the student uh, 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 group offices and then uh, over uh, the space of a month uh, they just they just cut them all apart um, and uh, until they had built this dome and then they put out that dome yeah and then we had oh yeah yeah I remember that yeah yeah so yeah so yeah I, I was also on campus and like you know walking by the the, the sub uh, you know frequently on my way to, to class it back and sort of like peering over there and being like huh there's uncomfortable parallels here there's uncomfortable parallels with like the Radvansky Center tapes where we realize that these people have contact points going much further back than they realize yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, we were both we were both UBC undergrads. So. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and, I, and I and I will straight up say, when it came to the dome, it was like that was the aspect of strategy that the the hardcore hippie contingent of that movement was all about. Mm, they love dome. Um, for that's listeners so that don't, don't know about BC University politics in the early thousands, this was just a fight against a big uh, property development for uh, to, to replace the public space in the middle of town or in the middle of town in the middle of campus um, with like a bunch of for-profit condos and a Footlocker instead of like student housing or green space or whatever like that. And like a group of students that I was uh, that I was a part of, but very very minor part, not taking credit uh, for for the actual real hardcore organizers. I uh, just fought them for like a year and a half and like actually won um and the dome played a role and we did get all the planners fired (laughs) that was fun (laughs) fucked them pretty good take that skeletons yeah exactly um we do get a, a really strange kind of encounter then with um emily ben bob and shannon sitting at the the little uh uh decks um uh, Shannon has found the little dice in her jacket pocket, which is actually Conway's jacket. And uh, Emily, Ben and Bob are like, wow, cool. That's that's exactly the dice we need for our game. Now all we need is a dark basement to play in. It's like, oh, my, my friend's uncle said he'll, he'll lend us a basement. Um, fucking strange. I, I kind of wonder, does this, does anything, I wonder what replaces this scene if you don't pick up the dice um, at the start of the game? Uh, I think they're just is not a scene uh, because I, this time around, I didn't take the dice and I didn't get this scene. 
Me, me neither. Yeah, that's right. I don't think I did get this scene. And I don't think I took the dice at the beginning of... Oh, wait, I did take the dice, though. Anyway, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you can miss these things anyway, because, like, I, I figure there's, like, in any given one of these segments, like, between the, the blank screens, it's like there's probably 20 encounters and you can see any 12 of them or something. You know, something like that. Um, I hadn't noticed that uh, Shannon was wearing Conway's jacket later, uh, but, yeah, it's a, it's a nice transition, you know? Does he give it to her when he gives her the truck? I think it's when they board the um, the boat because when... Oh, yeah, right. I think it's because they have to have his jacket off so they can show that he's got a skeleton arm now. And he's, wear- he's right. only wearing That's a shirt right. with his sleeves rolled up for all of Act 4. Um, and I think when you see Shannon on the prow of the boat immediately, like at the beginning... She's wearing that jacket, but I mean, I, I just didn't notice. I mean, because it'd been three fucking years between episodes, like I just didn't notice that it was a change of costume. Um, uh, what else have we got? Um, Ron uh, is chatting with Clara. Um, she's kind of going on about like where she'll go off to. Um, I mean, I think she can stay or she can kind of go off on her tour. Uh, Ron is kind of going on about how one of these, you know, one of the horses was a bookworm, so he'd leave out books in the barn for them. There's a lot of character building for the neighbors that we never actually get to meet them, but like uh, they're very characterful horses um, that everyone's very much in love with. Yeah, and, and Ron Ron's relationship with them in particular is very funny. Um, like uh, the barn uh, where the horse uh, where the, the the neighbors were housed. Like if you go in there uh, uh, with your cat. Um, there's just like this like enormous swarm of insects that like comes up into the rafters and you just think about how like that's the place where like the visiting artist was going to stay for the <laughs> night that's the that's the place where like Ron offered to house her the loft yeah <laughs> yeah this filthy fucking barn yeah absolutely um yeah, so Marianne's painting is coming along. It's starting to actually look like uh, two horses. Um, this will eventually get hung up on the front of the barn, which I think is a Kentucky thing to hang like quilts, I think, like very em- embroidered tapestries off of the front of barns. Is that a thing? Am I imagining that? It's because I think she says that she had been inspired by a barn she had seen driving and she took a sketch of the barn. But I think she's painting this rather than embroidering it, which she wouldn't realize is a, is a problem. I, I think that's how that works. Um, listeners, write in and correct us. Or I could just look at Wikipedia later. That's fine. Um, uh, we find Nikki over by the uh, the ditch where the uh, ghost of the um, out-of-towner was. And we notice that there, there is actually a flower bed there. Um, and she's she's still doing her thing of carrying the, the flame for the out-of-towner. And she does remark that um, to herself, of course, well, maybe to the cat, that if, if they'd only let him finish the ditch, uh, this place would be dry as a bone. Um, maybe that's the other part of this that suggested a murder, but I don't know. I, I'm, 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 I've been converted to, to all three of this. I, I, I think this is, I think it's, he was definitely killed by the company. One way or the other. That's one way or the other. Yeah. And it was malicious. Yeah, and I definitely recall, like, uh, there were definitely, you know, uh, numerous straight up saying, you know, this guy died of overwork. It was just, uh, I, I think it was just that um, uh, Nikki's poem in the previous intermezzo 
you know, it's, you, you can tell I read some really pretentious academic books every time. <laughs> every time someone in an academic book is an interim mezzo, I lose my shit. But like, but in this, in these situations, it's quite appropriate. Um, and uh, and yeah, I I, I, there, I just remembered this description of oh, like it's a mur- oh yeah, the, he was murdered or, or the, the language seemed like that. But of course, that could have been um, figurative language. Mm-hmm. It probably was, yeah. We then get this really lovely scene with Rita and Ezra at the library, uh, where she's offering to tell Ezra about the history of the library and the history of the Pueblo de Nada. Um, I love this line she has then. Um, it's like, I like that kind of history, the lived-in details. That's how you know people have always been people, always made choices, and nothing was inevitable. Yeah, it's like for, for all the failures of the Pueblo de Nada, they had agency and they used that agency in a particular way. It blew up on them eventually, but it wasn't exactly a mistake to live that way. Um, and so Pueblo de Nada is supposed to be like an experimental utopian living that they've done. Okay, just just so I'm clear on that. Like a, they, like, they were like utopians who came up from Mexico to here. And their whole thing was that everything was up for grabs as an experiment and they would adjust their community living on the fly and experiment with it and, and so on. But the that kind of radical openness is, prob- is probably what did them in eventually uh, because they were radically open to being taken over by a micro tyrant. Yeah. And, wh- and where does Fraser come from? In the, I feel like I missed that. He, 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 he's the tyrant who, who destroyed them. He's the tyrant who destroyed them. Okay. Uh, he's the one whose his experiments had a scorched earth quality to them, which is how I want and, and, and they never explain where he comes from or who he worked for or anything like that. He's just kind of no. He's just a member. Just a member of the community. He's just a and, you know? and, and in fairness, like an archetypal member of of those types of communities, right? Like that's mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. exactly. And, and organizing groups and right, like there's always a Fraser. Mm. I've known a few Fraser. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've never been a Fraser, but it's only because I'm too lazy. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of fucking work being a psychopath, you know? Yeah, um, good work ethic. I guess it's, it's like the lack of structure is what did them in there because, like, you know, structure is what would let you guard against that kind of stuff. But the fact that they were wildly open to it mean, meant that they were ultimately wildly open to getting fucked over in that way. Um, and, yeah, that's just that's just a problem. Um, there's also just, like, the kind of cult mentality that's gestured at where, like, you know, I think it's um, the person who's hiding the journal uh, talking about how, uh, like, she's terrified at how much uh, people just do whatever uh, Fraser sort of, like, gestures at. Like, you know, that sort of, like, uh, you know, like, who will rid me of this troublesome priest kind of, uh, uh, like, insinuations that lead to violence against people. Um yeah. It's no good. Um, I think it's it's quite nice that, like, we only get snippets of these memories uh, from these people. Like, we don't get the full story. And it's because this place has a history. And it's a history that even if, we, even if it was written up in volume after volume, we wouldn't have the time to ever catch up on. And especially not for these characters who are kind of, you know... For some of these characters, it's a fly-by-night kind of thing, right? They'll, they'll move on tomorrow to some other sort of place. For some of them, they're, they're settling in. Uh, to actually live here, but they're they're necessarily newcomers. They're not they're not going to be privy to these details. Like for some reason, the cat is. But these are this is this is the past. These aren't ghosts. Um, it's not really for us to know exactly how this came about. Um, at this point, we get, uh, this is this is beautiful. Uh, Johnny and Junebug walk up, 
And Rita is like, uh, Desra is like, oh, is this your family? And I fucking love the way this is presented as like the three dialogue options where it's, they're, they're all three of them are parenthesized. And it's Ezra looks at Johnny, Johnny looks at Junebug and Junebug looks at Ezra, which I have to imagine that the, all three of those things happen simultaneously. And they're just like looking at each other furtively back and forth. Um, beautifully presented. And then the option I always go for is for Ezra to say, yeah, that's right. This is my family now. Um, which and then we get another smash cut to black uh, saying that Ron dug a grave, um, but I I don't know like I mean some of the options here as well are that like uh, Ezra can be very desperate to get back to Julian and so on. Um, I mean again maybe it's just me I have a hard time imagining those other options as being like the canonical way this should play out. Yeah, well I, I think that the point though is the one that Rita says right that. They've all people have always been people. They've always made choices, and nothing was inevitable. Uh, the game is trying to enact that principle, right? Like the whole thing here. There's a lot of stuff going on about this um, dialogue between like fate and free will, right? Like, oh, you know, people have always made choices here. Nothing was inevitable, but also it was kind of fated by this like weird spiral thing. That was in, it was seen in a dream by by a seer in the past, and 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 possibly this whole thing has been set up by Weaver, who is like literally a Weaver of fate. Uh, so it's a lovely interplay of those layers, right? Because it's um, it's uh, it, it it's it's very similar to the kind of um, uh, this, the like cybernetic philosophy you get through Pickering and Beer and so so forth, where both agency and structure are real and like. But it, nothing is necessarily determined, but there are, like, strong tendencies, and then there are moments of breakage. There are lines that converge, there are lines that diverge, there are ones that aren't determined exactly what geometry they're uh, they're operating in yet, you know? Um, and for, for today, these people have converged on this point, uh, but throughout, throughout all this dialogue, we can determine where they're going to go next. Some of them will get trapped in a little gravity attractor that like, keeps them here. Some will spiral out into other, other places. And yeah, I mean, Rita's right. This, is, this isn't inevitable. Even if, uh, even if I have a very particular hang-up on having Ezra be adopted by June, uh, Junebug and Johnny. Yeah, and th- we could, I think it's safe to say that, uh, that you know, the, the authors of this game, the creators of this game, uh, are not Althusarians. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. There's a lot of open-ended contingency here. Um, yeah, totally. After the cut, uh, we get uh, Elmo and Johnny at the Waffle House. Um, and I guess Elmo's handing it over to Johnny, basically. Um, we get a bit of the story of how this used to be the company store, and a bit of the story of the um, the demonstration against the power company after the death of the... Well, the, de- the death of the hired man, I guess. Um and this is what made them be ungovernable and what uh, prompted the power company to withdraw. Yeah, it's very interesting because they sort of talk about like how, you know, at first they mostly just felt shame. But then that shame moved to anger and then they were able to actually act. And, you know, talking about how, like, I guess it's is, is it Elmo who talks about like all the sort of like secret codes they used and stuff to try to evade uh, company surveillance and everyone was afraid for their lives and like uh, somebody was it Ron who was like the guy who like paraded down the main street in protest even though he was worried he was going to die mm, I think so um, 
and it's that also reminds me kind of uh, i mean i guess you we've already t- uh, talked about it too but just like um, and it has me rethinking now, like kind of the Bureau of, of Reclaimed Spaces is kind of clicking for me too. It's like there is also this theme, right, of uh, that we've already talked about of um, the need to like reclaim these spaces after um, you know uh, uh, the, the company moves out or we or they kicked out the bosses or you know like the Waffle House is a reclaimed space, and we see that over and over again um, um, through uh, even you know living in uh, those people living uh, along the Echo or whatever. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, you know, rec- you're reclaiming it, doing something uh, uh, that makes them happy or that they think has value, uh, some sort of pers- personal use value. You know? That definitely is a recurring theme throughout this whole thing, right? That like, um, I mean, it's even in Act Two with the hermit crabs uh, on the TV and and they're in person at the bureau with their like reclaimed uh, homes. Like, it, it's it's this act. The, some of the content of this act is actually foreshadowed quite strongly in act, in act two right um and this this theme of home has always been been recurring um but like the, the reclamation can have all these kind of different modes where with the bureau of reclaimed spaces you have this like weird viral machine that like hoovers up these spaces and turns them into office buildings um where you have this sort of stuff which kind of reminds me of the sort of thing we saw a sort of glimpses of in the george floyd uprising with like once the once people had driven the cops out of town or at least driven the cops out of the neighborhood, um, and then instantly started setting up like community centers and like all this kind of stuff. It was like there, there it is. Like it's it's right below the fucking surface. Like once once the shitheads are gone, people can actually live and organize on their own terms. And you know something something beautiful there um, in 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 seed form. It's not fully formed, but it's there. You know, and there's there's definitely hints of that here too. Um, what else we got? Uh, Ron is continuing to dig the grave. Um, he kind of remarks that, like, are we are we burying the neighbors or the town or both? Um, again, a recurring kind of refrain here. Um, and yeah, it's both. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit with the seer uh, in the little cave next to the um, next to the the spiral uh, where she's it's flooding again and she's uh, she's in the cave waiting for it to drown her. Um, they haven't yet found their way to the safe place. She wonders if the diver has made it there. I wonder if the diver is actually the pile of bones at the campfire. That's possible. Um, oh, yeah. That would make a lot of sense. Which would also make a lot of sense with the way that um, Death of the Hired Man ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, lot of, a lot of resonances here, you know? <laughs> uh, I think at this point Wanda is awake. Um, and she's surveying for the Bureau. And for me, this played out with, uh, she's like, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to reclaim this. And Shannon is like, "Mm, hold your horses. Not quite yet. Um, there's also like a discussion here. I'm not sure if it's in the conversation of Wanda, but where they talk about how like the houses that were built by the company to house the workers, like all the floors are rotted out on them, but the ones that were built by other people like these previous communities or the new ones uh have like solid foundations um and it's this kind of like continuous thing of like you know whenever capital sort of like builds a purpose-built community for the purposes of accumulation there's there's something rotten about it (laughs) yeah uh Yeah. Well, and I was thinking it works. It, it it works both figuratively and literally. 
right? Like it is, it is indeed like, yes, there is something rotten at a kind of, um, uh, philosophical, spiritual, felt, effect, effective level, uh, all those levels. And also, they probably would just build the workers shitty fucking houses, right? <laughs> like, that would, that would absolutely not withstand those storms uh, because they don't care whether they live or die, right? So, like, um, so it, it, yeah, it works, at both of the, it works at both of those levels, right? Yeah, it's, it's like the, the, the portable housing, like, near Fort Mac or something like that, right? It's like Gold, Ru- Gold Rush Town kind of shitty construction yeah that's right that wild the wildfire a few years ago right it just went through it like tissue paper right yeah which is like literally like this is very much like a real world example of this kind of flood right which is like obviously capital's fault yeah oh god I, i don't know why that reminded me but like um i think like yeah 2007 2008 or whatever like i was living in yeah, I think I was living in Limerick, right? Like, um, and like everything fucking crashed. And basically, they, they were building this huge fucking mall out just on the edge of town. And like, when everything went went to shit, like they just kind of abandoned the site and left the fucking cranes up. And so for for months and years after, you could like drive, get the bus past that place, and just see these like rain sodden fucking cranes still up in and like this completely unfinished foundation and stuff. Um, and like, it's like the Museum of Housing. Yeah, exactly right. Like that, it's just this. Um, that 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 stuff stuck with the mind of like the abandonment and just like the rot that's left behind after those operations. And like this whole thing here just reminds me of that sort of thing. Also, yeah, we do get a sense that things are starting to wrap up. Though um, one of the last kind of scenes we can get is um, Shannon with the antiques, wondering who the fuck ordered all this stuff. Um, and she has a nice line uh, saying that now we're setting it all up, trying to reverse engineer this person we never met. I kind of feel that we are that person. We're making that person right now together. Um, I don't know if that dialogue's probably contingent on the options you've chosen until that point. Uh, probably. I, I, I got that as well. And it was basically like, yeah, to me, that that's sort of that classic utopian notion of... Uh, like a new humanity, like the new Soviet man or whatever, like that, that in building utopia, you are building a new humanity. You are becoming somebody else uh, that like, you know, this, this was meant for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The new Soviet man with like a secretary desk for a chest, you know, and like cybernetic fucking uh, uh, telephone pole arms. But I mean, but this is this is it's just classic to all utopias. Like you don't have a utopia without the idea that your that like nurture is more powerful than nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you're constructing something rather than like just being being something that is already defined. Again, I mean, Junebug and Johnny again, right? Like um, active construction of a self um, and so on. But this is the active construction of a of a communal sense of identity um, rather than cool hipsters. Um, well, and this is even the um, this is the act, right? In which I think even June Bug says how her and Johnny were like gray nothings or something like that before they turned themselves into hipsters. Um, and in fairness, like they've written some pretty uh, pretty all right synthwave tunes, you know. So I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I still haven't listened to the June Bug album. I need to do that. Uh, I didn't know there was an album. That's so cool. There's a fucking album. It's on. It's on Bandcamp. I downloaded it, but uh, I still haven't gotten around to it. Um, I love that song in Act 2 or 3 or whatever it was. I just thought it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. That's a belter. 
Um, and then we kind of come to the end. Uh, Ron will ring the bell tower. Uh, well, the bell in the tower. The, the bell tower that is swarming with pelicans and parrots. Um, and, like, the sun is starting to go down. It's beautiful. It fucking looks gorgeous the way the light works at this moment. There's all these birds on top of the bell tower. What are they doing there? And he rings the bell and they don't move or react, which is absolutely not what birds would do. <laughs> I'm pretty sure pelicans don't like to hang around for that kind of shit, you know? Uh, but hey. Like, yeah, you know, bells are loud. Um. Mm-hmm. Now that the bell has been rung, uh, the everyone gathers at the graveside um, in front of the barn uh, with Emily leading the procession. Um, She's saying that she'll stay. Uh, well, I mean, I, I chose the, the option for her to stay. Um, although there's a lot of stuff here of like, hey, look, we know that we know that everyone, like a lot of people have actually had to leave already to like get a boss. Um, you know, Ron's going to be making a tr- trek across the field later if you want to follow him. Uh, but, you know, we appreciate you sticking around for this ceremony. Um, this is just such a lovely little scene. It's kind of like there's a bunch of different things that are touched on here. It's like, why didn't we name them? You know, we just always call them the neighbors or the, the silver one and the and the and the um, and the brown one. It's the, it's the silver one and the other one. Yeah, the, the other one. <laughs> um, and like you can you can feel the the feeling dripping off of the um, off the words here as you read through it. You know. Um, yeah, uh, it, it it it's very believable. Like Emily's speech is really rambly and, and awkward and Ron with like Ron's such a weirdo where he's like you know like they they crapped on my floor I didn't talk about it but now I'm talking about it but also if any of you had crapped on my floor I would have cleaned that up too and it would have been okay like this is very like like okay I, I guess that's that's a very like friendly. That's a friendly thing to say, but also it's fucking weirdish. It. <laughs> it, it was a very nice gesture, but don't say it again. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ron's such a weirdo. It's these lovable freaks this, that this town was made up of. You know, um, and there there's a strong sense of that right here at the end. Um, Rita also. It's, it's like she's like the the people of nothing arrived by horseback in October, and their first experiment was to free the horses. That was generations ago, of people and horses. I don't know when we started calling them the neighbors. We should have called them the people, I think. They were the only consistent residents of this place for over a hundred years, and now they're all gone. Who are the people now? Um, It finishes then on... Firstly, Nikki reads out a poem for the neighbors and for the town, which you have a couple of options. It's it's like the um, Johnny and June book song in Act 3, where there's like three tracks you can choose options from. Um... And compose your own, uh, which is a nice kind of send off to like, you know, player autonomy at the end of all this. Um, yeah, this is really important because you can choose like very bitter downer uh, 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 verses to this poem. And you could also choose like somewhat more optimistic ones. Uh, so it, it's like really... You know, all this utopian stuff, like, you can choose to reject it and just say, like, nah, we were just dirt poor. We got screwed by the power company. This whole thing has been a disaster. 
And now we just need to, like, make, like, go on with the wreckage of our lives. Mm-hmm. So she, like, find no meaning in it whatsoever or no reason to, you know, think anything's ever going to be better sort of thing. Which is not the, which is not the options of the poem I chose. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, likewise. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also kind of important that this is, um, you're leaving off on this uh, set of choices that, come back to that theme of the game where you, you're you not really choosing the trajectory of how things go, you're choosing the vibes um, and the, the like, sentiment of, of how things feel. Um, even though, I mean, you, you do have choices here to alter the course of people's lives, like will they stay or go and so on. Um, there's something fitting about this in the end. It's vibes that, that we leave off on. Yeah, and I, I, I think that um, there's some lines here about the neighbors where... Nikki basically, I think it's Nikki who says this, or it might have been an earlier dialogue, but basically that after the workers revolt, um, when they were first trying to carry on in this town, um, the neighbors were like what allowed them to sort of like heal emotionally Um, and so I think there's kind of this like dual nature to the neighbors where it's like, on the one hand, they're a symbol for the, you know, like the feral humanity, the people, right. Who have come out the other side of capitalism and become something new and better. Um, but they're also kind of a symbol for the relationship with nature, that like there is something nurturing about about nature that like can help heal all of the damage that has been done by capitalism um yeah they're they're a healing catalyst um and and ron is quite right that like this is the end of that community with them gone that like the the horses were holding everything together um and whether a new community springs up here is is immaterial to Ron because it's just like that's that's just the end of his home, and he's going to have to move on. Um, mm-hmm. um, we then get a smash cut to black uh, with the uh, sentence on screen saying "We buried the horses," and we come back and Emily launches into a really beautiful rendition of a song called "I'm Going That Way." I've heard of a land of joy and peace and wonderful life A beautiful place of mansions fair and skies so bright Where all who believe the Savior dear forever shall stay And having been saved by grace divine, I'm going that way. I'm going that way. I'm going that way. Yes, dear, the Savior I adore is with me each day. I'm clinging to him and never to stray. Just singing praises all day long. I'm going that way. 
Well, glorious news I tell and sing as onward I go. For those who are still astray in sin, my Savior may know. I want them to sing that praise above some beautiful day. For glory to Him who died for me, I'm going that way. I know I shall meet Him at the gate when trials are past. I know I shall meet Him face to face in glory at last. Oh, I believe that when we meet, well done, He'll say. While trusting my soul redeem in love, I'm going that way. I'm going that way. I'm going that way. Yes, dear, the Savior I adore is with me each day. I'm clinging to Him. Just singing praises all day long, I'm going that way. This is just absolutely fucking spectacular because, um, like, the ghost chorus that comes in, like, slowly as she's singing and then becomes, like, very hard to not notice. And then just more and fucking more of them all standing around with the community. Like, the community is vastly outnumbered by ghosts. Um, I love the way that, like, Emily is a very competent singer, but almost nobody else there is. So when the when the rest of the people start to join in, it's initially very hesitant and they're murmuring and, like, very... and then, But they, they gain their confidence. But even when they're belting out the last chorus, they're way off tune and the timing is all over the fucking place. But it's so good. It's wonderfully uplifting to finish on this note. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think I've, like, cried in a long time because I, I've just been sort of an emotional husk because of the pandemic. But I was I was absolutely just sobbing after watching this. Both, I mean, both times. But, yeah, this the second time, it was, it, it's, it's, it's so powerful. Uh, like just the way that like her body language goes with the music is is really incredible too, and it communicates so much uh, about the whole thing. Um, and it's the only one of these like big like blowout fucking renditions that has this kind of like positive note because it's it, it it's one is one is going to a, ble- a better place, right? And like in in the in the text of the song, it's like you're going to heaven, right? But or you're you're going on to the the the, the promised land, um, but for the for the people here who are going to remain there, it's it's like uh, Weaver's promise to Shannon has come true, right? That like this this is a better place that she is going to, um, and it's a it's an in in that kind of I guess like socialist tr- tradition, it's like an earthly heaven, right? That's the you know like social the history of socialism has this like unmistakably like Christian eschatological uh, vein running all throughout it. Um, and that's that's here too, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, this is like, it's about, it's a song that's about passing on to heaven, but it's also a song that's about keeping the faith and, and, and like, you know, staying on the straight and narrow and being a good Christian, right? Like that, that like, you know, you'll never stray from the path to heaven. Uh, and, you know, this is, um, like it, it's a funeral here, but it's also like the people who are going to stay entering into a covenant with the dead, right? Like it's it's taking up that that communist thread, um, and and like committing to it, and yeah, basically joining that cohort of 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 ghosts, um, and. Uh, I think that's another part of this that's really powerful because it is it's about it's about grace and salvation. And I think that there's there's a couple of things in the poem that Nikki reads where she talks about grace. Um, or no, sorry, that's in the interstitial afterwards. But uh, she does she does actually uh, bring up the line from the, the uh, death of the hired man uh, about uh, what is it? Uh, home is. Something you don't need to deserve. Uh, yeah, I should have called it something you sub- somehow haven't to deserve. Uh, so you don't need to deserve it to have it. Um, and, you know, that is a dimension of what's going on here in terms of, like, talking about, like, I'm going to heaven, right? Like, that's a home. Uh, I think there's also, there's an angle on this that I, I find really compelling that it works on a couple of levels because like it's it's a funeral so somebody is entering the kingdom of heaven today right um but the the, the lyrics well i mean horse, do horses go to heaven i don't know um uh but if you listen closely to the initial the, the opening lines of the song it's like i heard of a place um you know it's a, a fuck i've forgotten the fucking lines but like it's i've heard of a place of joy and peace and wonderful light um and then i'm going that way so that, that person is not entering the kingdom of heaven today, but they they believe it's possible and they're going in that direction. Um, so whether whether you're at the gates right now uh, on the verge of revolution or you're simply carrying it in your heart, this can work on those both of those levels. Um, and we, we have all of those levels crossing here at this funeral. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and I mean, it, it's also like, you know, the people just sort of trail away after the ceremony. And the ghost, there's... The ghosts just wink out slowly. Yeah, as do the ghosts, right? Yeah. It's so beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's that's really powerful as well. Um, and the way there's that, like, slight pause before people start to kind of, like, shuffle around and walk away, you know? And, like, obviously Johnny and Junebug are there, and they're, like, like whirring mechanical noises are going... When they when they start to walk, and but it's it's dead silent. Other than that, um, also like Johnny and Junebug have fucking changed outfits again. They've got these lovely fu- funeral outfits on. And it's like, where's that wardrobe? You know, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I love it. Yeah, Junebug has a few a few of those throughout the game, right? Where it's just like, when did you get into that uh, like resplendent aquamarine uh, puffy dress? Or you know, like it was sort of you know just uh, which is kind of classic 
classic kind of hipster maneuver too, right? Like she's just, she's got like the wardrobe. She probably didn't spend more than five bucks on it, or she's or she's like I mean, the, the hip, hipster communities are, are have different classes too. There's actually, but like, but there's a particular type of character that Johnny and Junebug are um, that are they're not they're not. Um, uh, downwardly mobile upper middle class kids, right? Um, uh, who have who have been abandoned under neoliberalism or whatever. There, uh, there's another. There's their their um, uh, you know, like work uh, proletariat or lumpet proletariat kids who um, who are just trying to do something on on their own, right? And, uh, there's a there's a certain amount of. Uh, 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 yeah, there's something about her Jude Bug's outfits that like really appeal to me that like really speaks to that. Uh. So, so my head canon is that the outfits they have they they keep them in a chest cavity, like if there's a wardrobe in there, like with, with hangers, but that these are all stolen from washing lines. That like once they left the mines, they were naked like robots, and then they they stole all these jackets and shit from fucking people's washing lines. Um, I like that. They're like, oh wow, yeah, this is a great detail to add to my my personality. I'll just take it you know that's my headcanon for these folks yeah so then there's this amazing pan that we get right because it's like the people leave it's very like silent it feels like a downer like oh well that's it like emily's song's over the funeral's done and then it just like pans over it has this like incredible color gradient that it does of going from the dark tones of the shadow of the barn where the funeral is being held towards the sunset uh, where the the weirdo icon house is and everyone who's chosen to stay there is like, you know, facing towards the sun. Mm-hmm. They're hanging out. And I think the, the layout of the furniture inside Dogwood Drive is, it reflects the choices you've kind of emphasized in like, is it going to be a library? Is it going to be a community kitchen? Is it going to be a performance space? And there's a couple of different ways this this can play out. Um, but it, it's spectacular because, like, like the, at this point, the camera has panned way up high and is looking way down. Um, and then it, people drift away, but they, a lot of them are walking along the airstrip towards Dogwood Drive. And if, you know, your cat is then, you know, you can bound along this thing and have this beautiful sweeping pan and just settle on this one shot with... Everyone just kind of cozying around, and uh, one of the bed quilt ramblers is just like sort of noodling on a guitar, like not really even playing a tune, and then cut to black. That's the end. Beautiful, absolutely fucking beautiful way to finish this. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, I think it's it's very much that sort of like you have that that contrast very starkly made between the weight of history and the possibility of the future. And it, it's it's all done in that pan. Hmm. Fucking chef fingers. This is this damn thing is a masterpiece. Like, what an experience. I think we should just briefly talk about the the, the ending coda, the interstitial. Um. So as we sort of said, it's at uh, the lower depths. And you can watch the TV. Um, there's a d- bunch of different channels you can switch between. I mostly just watch the uh, stock car race. Um, it's not not NASCAR because uh, I think this is like before NASCAR existed. This is like like early days, like 70s stock car racing. Um, uh, but it was you know it was just something to look at. 
uh, while you were sitting there watching this dialogue because it is really quite ponderous and uh, it's it's like oh my god like <laughs> you can't really like you you really feel like you're just sitting there and be like ah like get on with it you know um, but uh, yeah we have that uh, death of the hired man being played out. Uh, even though uh, Carrington has just failed to produce it. <laughs> um, but then, uh, you know, basically, uh, what's his name? The uh, the, the proprietor? Uh, Harry. Yeah, Harry sort of, like, gets on to talking about, like, well, you know, what's, the, what's, the, what's that poem about? Like, you know, like, what is this thing that you're doing? Like, just to make conversation. And, uh, and Carrington sort of, like, describes this thing about home, right? Um, that we saw before, uh, you know, it's something you, you ought to deserve. And, and, you know, he's sort of like, well, well, like, you know, uh, Harry, what does this mean to you? Um, and, you know, this thing that you, uh, haven't to deserve, uh, Harry describes it as, uh, like the grace of God, right? Like this is something that's given to you but all you can try to do is live up to the gift that's been given to you, right? That, that like, by giving you eternal life and salvation through, uh, like, baptism, like, which is what, like, you know, uh, Harry's directly describing this here. He's not just, like, alluding to it. He's saying, like, by being baptized, you get salvation. You don't have to do anything for it. All you can do is try to live up to that gift, right? Um, and so it's like this idea of like, you get this thing for free, but somehow it also like puts you in debt perpetually. Um, uh, because it's like, well, how could I ever live up to, like how could I ever feel adequate to unconditional salvation, right? Um, and then Carrington gives his interpretation of the of the the line and he says like well it's basically you know it's not a reality but it is a moral claim that we need to make real in this world so he he basically takes like the the socialist line about what this means about what what home would be home is a moral ideal that we try to create so that there is a place for everyone that they don't need to have deserved. Um, and then Emily, who has just been sitting there watching TV the whole time, uh, and like has been completely silent. Like you don't even know she's in the scene cause you can't see any of the characters. She speaks up and she's like, Oh no, that's a grave. <laughs> um, like, like, you know, the place that's always there, like, you don't have it to deserve it, is a grave. Because everyone is guaranteed a place where they're going to die. Um, uh, and so those are sort of the three interpretations of the poem that the game puts forward. Um, and it's, it's sort of, you know similar in a way to the, like the different ways you can read the last act or the ways that you can read Conway's story, right? That, you know, he's the hired man who dies. Um, but like, you know, do you see it as, well, he deserves to have a home 
even though he doesn't have one, because of grace? Uh, or should he have had one? Uh, because people should have made it possible for that to happen? Or did he just fucking die? Um, you know, that's that's the the three options you get on the table there. Um, Brutal. Like Emily's Emily's one there is pretty pretty grim. Um, I I like uh, yeah. I mean I I think I obviously I think I side with Carrington. Um, I I don't know why all that reminded me of, but um, like the folks at Mortal Science have been reading uh, stuff about like betrayal and like belonging and that sort of stuff. Uh, uh, Margalit Amishai Margalit I think is the author. Um, but they, they, a lot of that sort of stuff focused on. Like, uh, you look at like, the French Revolution and it's, like, liberty, egality, fraternity sort of stuff. And, like, fraternity meaning belonging or, like, uh, is one that has sense, one has a sense of uh, having a place in the world. Um, which I think Marguerite then takes to be, like, a kind of moral kitsch sort of thing. Like, it's it's like the what the word neighbor means in, in Christianity. It like, doesn't really mean anything, right? But what Carrington is getting at, and I think what this kind of whole thread gets at, is that, like, that kind of shouldn't be the case. Like, that, like, the unconditional belonging is the kind of moral like, remote place that, you know, it, one doesn't... It's like, when it comes to, like, belonging and betrayal and all that sort of stuff, it's all, like, are you inside or outside of the category based on, like, you're having earned it or so, some marker that's on you that, like, allows you inside or, or puts you outside the wall? Um, and for, for Carrington's read of this this thing of home, it's that, no, that really shouldn't actually be conditional. That that And that's that's the, that's the socialist aspiration, right? Is that, like... No, you, you would, in fact, unconditionally have a place in the world. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it, it, it just gets to, you know, um, the way in which, like, you know, exile has always been a part of human community. But uh, after the invention of private property, um, homelessness sort of became more and more of a pressing concern uh, to the point where it is like basically the everyday conditioning uh, disciplinary function on the proletariat, right? Is that, well, you don't work, you're not going to have a place to live because you have to earn a place to live because you don't deserve a place to live. Um uh, and so this is just sort of a, a core aspect of class society, but, uh, you know, particularly capitalism. Um, so yeah, so th- I mean, that's really the way the game ends is on this meditation on homelessness and home. And the language of deserving, I think is, uh, a, you know, really apt, I, you know, to p- have picked that poem and to bring up that, um, to bring out that line, right? Because like, like the political economy of capitalism is like, is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it implies its own, um, more, more moral political economy, right? An ethical political economy that is of course, um, like, like utterly unethical outside of any, right? Like, like outside of the, from an outside perspective, like looking in, I mean, it's, it's just uh, utterly barbaric, right? But I mean, like there's a reason why, um, uh, homelessness is treated with such, not just like, like the policing of it is not just, um, cruel, but it's like, it's cruel from the perspective of a kind of moral, uh, a perceived moral superiority of, of, uh, (laughs) the pig system, right? Uh, 
you know, like it's it's uh, yeah, you 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 don't desert like like to not have it. Um, there's always un- like like in, in the kind of ca- I think the, if there's a collective the capitalist unconscious like you know there's this 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 true like um, disdain that a lot of uh, uh, capitalist people and and various uh, state and organic intellectual elites that uh, that do their dirty work like really just almost subconsciously feel for people who, that couldn't des- that don't deserve a home right or whatever it happens to be right and so to break free from that um, uh, is is uh, and to point that out right as as a kind of utopian uh, end point is i think really powerful and apt I definitely think so, right? And like, I there, there's that that line in that poem always jumped out at me. And like, I think it's because I mean, maybe repeating some of these points, but like, getting beyond the logic of belonging, or like not belonging, but like of deserving, um, is very important. Because like, if it's like if we take you know, I mean, Marx's line, like uh, from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs, in that kind of system, deserving is just not relevant. Like the the accounting of like the moral accounting of like weighing up the scales one way or the other of like what one has contributed what one's going to take away right like um just should become just irrelevant it's like no you get you get home you get the means of life unconditionally um that's the the communist horizon right and yeah this is a really good way of rephrasing and restating it that like this is we're fighting for things that we shouldn't have to deserve yeah, exactly. <sighs> I mean, uh, I think this is, you know, really the thing with Conway, too, is that he latches on to that idea of the moral necessity of work. Of debt. You know, you have to repay the debts. Or of labor. Sorry, of labor. Yeah, like, oh, well, you know, you, oh, you just you got to pay your debts. You know, that's what people say. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, like... He clearly internalizes it as a moral failing that he, ended, like, ended up in that debt for that. Like, without even really, you know, you know, uh, connected the dots of how, like, like wait, like, yeah, how did you get in that debt, man? Like, let's look at that step by step. And so, um, and so I think maybe going back to what we said uh, earlier in the in, in in the episode, right? Um, that uh, or, or, or or I think maybe Kyle said, uh, you know, it's just you know, like how could Kyle, how could Conway have existed in um, this town with these with these other people that really feel unfettered from that internalized uh, self hatred? Almost. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think you know if. If Conway had a moral failing, like from a like virtue ethics perspective, like his ethical failing is that he is a coward. Uh, he he accepts the dominant ideology because he can't face himself, um, and he he just falls that all the way to the to the grave. And did he did he did, did he deserve that grave? No. But uh, the reason why he couldn't thrive in a better society is because of a a deep ethical flaw that has been inflicted on him by a really traumatic life. Yeah. What a fucking game. Jesus Christ. This thing is just, uh, I don't know, it's just amazing. Um, Do we have any wrap-up thoughts aside from those? 
I, I hope they make something, I hope they do something else. <laughs> That's really it. I mean, I don't have any profound philosophical uh, 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 thoughts, but I was, I was just like, man, what are they doing? Like, this is really remarkable uh, on so many different uh, aesthetic, um, uh, philosophical, uh, ethical, um, and uh, conceptual. Like, there's just so much going on that I, I would, I just hope that they do something. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, even if it was very difficult to score headshots. In the, with the controls, but like other than that, I just ten, ten out, otherwise it would be a ten out of ten. Yeah, the the dead zones on the controller are a bit off. You know. Yes. Yeah, uh, there's you get the the game pro is super excited face mm-hmm. um, uh, for this game. Yeah, can yeah. we get like a game? I want to get a game genie uh, little thing and just plug it in, and like, and then you just end up in a kind of maybe like an Owenite utopia oh, of yeah. some kind. Or there we go. Like just, it's just so you can play the whole game in thirty uh, seconds. Yeah, I kind of hope people do some data mining on this. Actually, I wonder if there's any hidden cut content and stuff. You know. Maybe that's a weekend project. Uh, this is a speedrun. Tool-assisted speedrun of Kentucky Route Zero. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, like, one thing I would say about this game, just to sort of close it out, is that I appreciate this is something that is, you know, artisan-crafted, but is commodified in such a way that it's available to pretty much anyone who has a computer like it's it's very different from what you typically get out of the arts and crafts movement which is like oh here's this you know craftsperson who like this master craftsperson who like built this you know like I don't know like these these craft people built this Bentley by hand uh, you know, with the finest leather taken from the finest farms in England. And, you know, it, it costs like $2 billion to buy. Uh, but, hey, it's a really, like, meaningful expression of human ingenuity. Uh, like, this doesn't feel exclusionary in the way that artisanal stuff uh, pretty much always is. No, for sure. They got, they got the finest artisanal shaders, you know. Um handcrafted fucking yeah Um, yeah yeah yeah. now that being said they are about to auction off the nft oh right sorry yeah we 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 had to impose scarcity (laughs) on it you know they're just they're 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 built on the the finest gpus um yeah 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 just i i you know then elon musk is bidding 10 10 million dogecoin get the, the the true version of kentucky route zero yeah High def, um, ultra high def thing. I, I don't, I don't think it is. You know, this just, uh, but no, but just the idea of like this. You know, um, I was just, you know, just riffing on the idea of uh, of uh, you know the artisanal. You're right. That there is something about that. Uh, the that artisanal production uh, certainly in the context of um, contemporary capitalism that is about. Um, uh, producing something that has to be scarce, and then you know um, the whole point. Uh, one of the be- uh, you know uh, leaving aside things like energy costs and computer equipment, software and hardware and so on. Like the point of um, uh, digital. One of the benefits of digital media is the idea of uh, easy reproduction and accessibility, right? And it really is it really is um, the need to inter- as we saw, you know, when we have, when we originally talked uh, first time I think I came on the show talking about Srinicek, right? Where it really has to be the um, 
you know, part of the platform revolution was capitalism, you know, trying to force, uh, re rewhittle that round, uh, that, that square peg into a round hole. You know, like how do we, how do we make this stuff scarce somehow? Or how do we, how do we make it, uh, so that we can commodify it, right? So that like the, the Lawrence Lessig vision of the future doesn't happen or whatever, right? Uh, you know, and, and NFTs are about that, right? Like creating artificial scarcity. And so I guess what I'm getting at is that Kyle, yeah, this is a great example of the way that uh, commodifying it in this way, but also just the fact that reproducing it, distributing it this way means that, yeah, it's not a, um, it's not a uh, $60 jar of uh, honey or something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that you buy at this farmer's market. Yeah. And I mean, we can, we can get into all the economics of like why this probably isn't a sustainable way to make games because of, you know, like platform capitalism and like, you know, Steam's like, what is it? They take like 40% of your revenue or whatever. And, and there's a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. And it's almost impossible for indie developers to, to stay in the business for long. Uh, but nevertheless, I just appreciate that this is a thing that can be shared among a lot of people. Uh, even if it, 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 even if, you know, it isn't, uh, isn't doing a lot for cardboard computer to, uh, to, 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 you know, stay, uh, healthy and wealthy into their old age. Maybe the production itself is a little bit utopian that, right? Like it points, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, points yeah. to, I feel like there are certain types of, of, of art like this that point the direction towards what might be possible. Um, like, wouldn't it be lovely to like, what sort of, wouldn't it be lovely to have a system that incentivized people to do the, to make these sorts of things out of passion and get them into as many people's hands as possible. Yeah. And like, I mean, they, they took ages to fucking do it. And like, that was definitely the right move. Right. Cause, um, they, they took the time to do it right. And there were obviously very dedicated to the craft of doing it right. I don't get the impression they made a lot of money on this initially. They may have like, you know, by the end actually sold quite a few copies on the switch or whatever. Um, but you know, it, it really seemed as if they were kind of just doing the, like, uh, eating ramen for six years sort of thing to get this thing done. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they're the, the, if they made money, they just made it in volume. You know, it's it's because like this game has never sold for super high prices. You know, it's even the TD TV version. I well, I I bought the TV version because I played it. Um, I decided to play it on the Switch because I just decided it might be a game that might be nice to like play in bed a little bit. You know, like there are times where I was going to want to just have that sort of uh, 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 freedom, right? I didn't really want to sit in front of my de my my uh, computer monitor uh, for for the nine hours. I knew I was going to do it, and um, and so it was only thirty bucks or something, right? Like that's not. That's 10 years of work, right? Like, so it's not... It's, it's indie. It's indie game stuff, you know? Definitely. It's very... Uh, that's a very low price for a Switch game. And I also appreciated, like, I mean, I think we spotted this pretty, pretty early on with, like, limits and demonstrations where they seemed to be teasing out what was possible on, like, the lowest hardware. Like, how, how could they make these textures and effects run on cheap hardware? And, like, that's another sort of way of committing to, like, accessibility is, like, you don't need a fucking, like huge uh computing rig to run this thing like and it's they're, they're they're dedicated to that craft of making it run on low low um low end hardware um so much to appreciate about all that they weren't committed to integrating the ray tracing is what you're saying mm. now oh can you imagine the, the ray trace to <laughs> reissue 15 years from now yeah that's right it is it, it feels it's really interesting because um 
you know, we've talked about how this game is uh, basically like a staged play in terms of the way it's uh, set up visually. Um, and one of the things about ray tracing is that lighting a game is a lot more like lighting a set than it used to be because like you're just putting lights in places and it's going to it's going to produce a realistic reflection of what that light would look like physically. So I feel like, well, first of all, ray tracing is completely unnecessary for this game because it, it, it they, they put like meticulous work into the lighting. Uh, but second of all, they're kind of ahead of the curve by like staging the game in this way. Uh, it, it, it's, it's sort of like they were doing they had this sort of mentality, the kind of like theater or film mentality of uh, producing a digital space that is going to become the standard in uh, in the future with with ray tracing as as a common technology. I think um, I think my, maybe my parting thought on all this is that if if this was their first pancake, I really want to see what they do next because like fucking hell like this is a very very strong showing for a first attempt and yeah i I can only imagine that whatever comes next will be even better um and what i want them to do is take the next 15 years off and just fucking do it and then blow my fucking mind um with with the results um take as long as you need folks it's gonna be i'm confident it'll be amazing um yeah, I guess that's Kentucky Route Zero. Um, thanks, listeners, for coming along on this this rather long uh, mini-series, but I think it's been extremely worth it. Um, and we've learned a lot about this by looking so closely at it. Um, there's a lot going on here that's not terribly evident from, like, the trailer. Um, oh, so much. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, a close. it bears closer examination, and uh, the closer examination is rewarding. Yeah, I mean, I was when we were going into this. I mean, we, we we talked about doing this like almost a year ago, but like I was kind of like thinking to myself, it's like, is this just gonna be a weird vanity project, like a weird fucking like bauble that we distract ourselves with, you know? And it's like, but once we started, it was like, no, this is entirely in keeping with with the rest of GIU. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a bit of a, a diversion, but to get to some really excellent stuff and, and an excellent uh, analysis, you know, and like it's you know a game game about nightmare capitalism you know and basically about socialist politics and like in whatever way they're about i mean they're not i I don't think these folks are like fucking reading kautsky before they go to bed but like yeah shrug who does you know uh not a realistic standard to hold people to um but like why doesn't this thing get any more fucking press for being for being what it is you know i mean i suspect that there is there is an element to which um uh, like 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 the, there is a logic of uh, like there is a, a logic of uh, commodified publicity um, that th- that the way they made this game and in particular the the, um, the the timing of releases does not fit with right like like the idea like you know like the idea I think of an episodic game uh, from the level of its uh, you know from the level of its production obviously is to okay you can um, you can make these things uh, uh, before you can you can start making the product, you start selling the product, getting revenue before you finish the product, right? And so, like, I think you can, and, and that can make a lot of sense from the purpose of uh, of um, 
making the logic as, uh, from the perspective of commodity production, uh, like like the, like the like the Hitman reboot, like that was the idea, mm -hmm. right? Which is which, by the way, I, I absolutely I love the Hitman reboot, but like, um, uh, but but that's the idea, I think. But the other the other aspect of it is that you can uh, try to keep hype going, right? And and for that to work, you have to know when the next one's going to come, and 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 then it, and you have to be able to intervene at various points with your with publicity like with a publicity strategy that is going to keep the, that is going to keep the hype cycle going and actually ex and actually amplify it from uh from um uh, uh from act to act let's say or from 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 yeah. from this was not designed with that in mind right this is like this is a this is a small indie very arty philosophically rich at sometimes challenging game um, in terms of just you know like it's not about it's not about it's not a Skinner box of constant gratification. Mm. Uh, you have you you have to uh, dig into it like a piece of literature, and some of them came out every two years, right? So it's like that's not a, that's not an easy game to. I mean, I'm almost amazed that it is as well known and loved as it is, and I'm happy they got to the point they were able to re release them all and then release them all at once in a final package uh, is just really uh, remarkable. Like, that's why, why I mean it's like it's a little bit utopian, right? Like not every developer could do this, but it gives you a sign of what you could do, right? If you uh, maybe lived on Dogwood Drive. I would say almost nobody could do this, you know. Um, I guess also, like, it kind of it kind of hides its light under a bushel a little bit because it wasn't evident from Act One that it would finish with the the echo of a like workers uprising, you know. Like, there's the, the, a lot of the theming develops gradually, and by the time it's by the time you've noticed it, it's it's gathered steam after quite a while and is is hitting you very hard by that point. But it's it's not there in the trailer. It's not really there in. It's not obvious in Act One, right? Like it's you have to you have to get a, a good bit into it, and maybe just the initial framing for like press and stuff was just like, oh yeah, I mean, hey, cool, look, weird, weird looking, fucking, you know, flat art thing, um, rather than it getting the kind of recognition for the the content that it ends up having. Yeah, I don't know, shrug. Uh, but now it's all complete, you know. Yeah, it's it's all yeah. I think it's it's also just a thing that's difficult to even communicate in the typical uh, game uh, press. So, like, you know, you could have, like, essays about it on Polygon or Vice Games or, you know, podcasts about it, all that kind of stuff. But to hit a bigger audience, um, it, it, it's like, you know, it's kind of like you've been alluding to, Bob, like the sort of consumer reports style reporting on this game would not yield very much like oh like you know uh uh well it had a stable frame rate um <laughs> uh, uh cool use of flat shading uh you know the the kinesthetics of the game were a little bit lacking here and there uh you know like not enough uh, variety i could use some skill trees like characters literally still stand still for minutes at a time you know <laughs> There's no multiplayer, um, like you know, all the all the all the kinds of things you would talk about in a typical game review. Uh, like this, it's just it, it's not illuminating of why this game is good. Yeah, and although I will say, in, in in defense of the press, I'm on Metacritic right now, and um, uh, every episode and um, every episode and the fi and especially the final package 
has a relatively rave review numbers, um, but the user reviews are significantly lower. Because, which means, which, yes, because what, because what, what's clearly what would happen is that actually, like someone at GameSpot gave it an eight, the gave Act Two at eight point five, and then, um, and then people maybe outside the target audience played it, and like so to give you, here's one. Um, uh, the set music is so good, but the gameplay is unexciting, right? Like the gameplay, like what does that even mean in this context? If you go through these reviews, you get a lot of that. Um, but but to, to be clear, what it is, is it's a combination of people giving it like one, two, three, and four, and then a bunch of other people giving it nine and 10. And it's, and it's, it's, all, it's always averaging at around a six, right? Not, not, you know, not to get into this weird, this fetishization of Metacritic number type stuff, but, but I'm just saying that uh, sometimes Metacritics are, Metacritics like tea leaves, you can read a lot into them. Like especially combining the the different reviews, and I think that's actually what happened. So I actually think game critics, on average, really liked this game. No, that that that's that's absolutely true, and I'm not saying that they didn't or that they didn't try to communicate what they liked about it. I think it's just it's the format that those uh, outlets work in that like doesn't have the vocabulary or the the grammar to really articulate what is good about this. Yeah. Um, well, cardboard yeah. computer, you got through to us, um, and maybe that can be the thing that helps you get to sleep at night. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, this this was fucking amazing. Um, again, thanks, listeners, for coming along on this whole thing, and I do strongly recommend you just go and play the damn thing, um, too. Um, even if you've enjoyed it vicariously, it could be, still be fun to go back and do that. Um yeah, we're gonna... I don't know what we're back with next. I think we're doing... We're reading a book next time, but we're gonna take a little bit break from recording before we get there. Um, and uh, enjoy some of the summer, if it ever happens. Because uh, right now it's, it's the middle of fucking May in Edinburgh, and it's still pissing rain. It's still fucking grey. We've got this arctic fucking wind on top of us. I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure summer's gonna happen this year. The prairies have gone from negative 30 to, to positive 30. <laughs> Oh no. Yeah. Uh, this stuff's all over the place, I guess, you know. I uh, can't win them all. Um, yeah, listeners, uh, go to generalintellectunit.net and check out the links from there to our Twitter at GIUnitPod. Um, uh, all the, I don't know, Facebook, all that kind of shit. Um, we've been recording for a while. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit. Give us a couple of bucks a month. You'll get on the community Discord, uh, which is a good time. And uh, uh, emancipation.network, that's the one. Um, this show is part of a network of Marxist podcasts and uh, a kind of research collective. We're, we're, we're just good folks who like to hang around and talk about this kind of stuff. Um, if you go on to emancipation.network, you can check out our sister shows, uh, Mortal Science, Swampside Chats, Jumpsuit Utopia, and From Alpha to Omega. And... Varn vlog. Derek's got some uh, vlog action going on, and it's good. It's real good. Lots of lots of interviews. Um, a lot of he's, he's going to be covering like uh, some like art stuff as well, and just a whole bunch of fucking cool stuff. Um, if you're like me, I just love anything fucking Derek does. It's it's good. Go subscribe. It's a great fucking thing. Um, you can find the link to that from emancipation.network also. Yeah, uh, for those who don't know who Derek is, uh, he's a long, long-term member of Left Media, um, and uh, 
Yeah, and uh, so, someone that uh, you may have heard on From Alpha to Omega, uh, opposite me in some some shows. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I got I got a fucking I got to tell you this thing. I had a fucking dream a couple of weeks ago where um, I don't know. I must have been missing the whole social hanging out, going to bars sort of thing because in the dream, like the Emancipation Network people were hanging out in a bar and just having a good time, and you know. And I remember in the dream, you, Kyle, you asked Derek, like, because his name, like, the name he'll use is C. Derek Farn. And you asked him, what does the C stand for? And he just turned to you and said, the C stands for Derek. <laughs> that's the way <laughs> I in my dream. So that's, that's my headcanon now for what the, what the C is. It would be, be a much angrier response to that. It'd be like, the C stands for Derek, Why don't you people Kyle? get that? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, as if it would be the most obvious thing in the fucking world. <laughs> oh, Christ. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 that was a strange dream. Anyway, uh, doing that thing that people fucking hate, where people describe their dreams. Uh, but, you know, I thought that was funny enough to, to warrant uh, breaking that rule. Um... Anyway, yeah, uh, thanks, thanks, Bob. This has been fucking great as well. We're really glad to have you back. Yeah, any any closing words, Bob, before we? Uh... I mean, you know what? Just that uh, it was a real. Thank you so much for inviting me. Not only is it always a pleasure to to chat with uh, with you two, um, and I always find I learn a lot from uh, uh, from you two in, in these conversations. Um, but also, the, thank you for giving me the opportunity uh, for giving me the nudge to go back and and, and finish this game and uh, experience it in this way and and do a bit of a close reading on it while I was while I was knowing that I'd have the conversation after. So it was just really great, and I really hope to uh, you know I'd love to get more recommendations for for games like this in the future because this is just yeah. really great absolutely um yeah i mean uh play disco elysium if you haven't already oh i'm on it i'm gonna be on it yeah i haven't yet but i was that one's non-negotiable yeah yeah wonderful uh yeah thanks again everyone it's been fantastic and we'll catch you again soon with some more content uh that will maybe a book this time not not another, another game we'll get around to disco elysium someday but um in the meantime, yeah, thanks for listening. It's been great. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.